Hi, I'm Megan Fee, and this is GRC and Me, where we interview industry thought leaders in governance, risk, and compliance on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, trends, and more to learn about your methods, solutions, and outlook in the space. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GRC and Me. I am Andy Roos, President of Field Operations at Logigate, and I'll be your host today. For this episode, I chat with Mike Santos, Director of Security and Information Governance at Cooley. Mike talks about the five layers to the maturity model of risk, the different decisions a risk practitioner has to consider for decision-making, and his own recommendations for maturing a risk program. So here's my conversation with Mike. Mike, it has been awesome sitting around and working with you over the last couple of days as we've been meeting with a lot of other risk practitioners. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me here. I thought maybe we'd start off about you sharing your background in GRC and your risk journey in your current role as Director of Security and Information Governance at Cooley. Well, thanks for having me here. My uh, background was I started off in the Navy and the Navy had a lot of processes and put a lot of thought into thinking about risk. What is the risk of doing certain things? How do you minimize the risk of working on, you know, ships, working with weapon systems? You want to always make sure that in the end, nobody's getting hurt. Uh, that shouldn't be getting hurt, I guess. I then uh, went into the IT world after the Navy. And the IT world is back at the time, I think cyber risk wasn't a really big deal, but there's still IT risk. You know, the risk of a system going down, a, a risk of a change affecting something. Um, and then, uh, you know, cybersecurity came along and I kind of fell into that realm. I was kind of the person standing there going, sure, I'll do it when nobody else wanted to do it because nobody thought it was really much of anything. So I took over cybersecurity for where I work right now at uh, Cooley, which is an, an international law firm. And I started doing cybersecurity and lo and behold, cybersecurity just blew up. Uh, I got to the point where my organization wanted to really get involved and get ISO 27001 certified. Uh, and part of that is developing a risk management program. And that's really what threw me and my team into risk management was ISO 27001, because there's a lot in there about what is your risk program? Are you doing your annual risks and everything else? And that's about where I got started with risk. It was kind of an eye-opening experience. I mean, we'd been dealing with cyber risk, but not in the same way. In cyber risk, you go, oh, well, I make sure that, you know, I have anti-malware. So I have, anti it was more of a checklist at the time. And this was really thinking through, okay, well, what are the risks that are out there? What are the risks of a nation state? How do you mitigate what you're going to accept? And those types of things. I got involved that way. And, you know, that has led me to where I am today, where we have a broader risk management program that not only includes cyber risk, but business continuity risks, as well as uh, the risks that you see with just handling information and the governance of all the information that we have at a law firm. And then, you know, privacy has really come in strong the last couple of years. So now privacy is a big part of our risk program as well. And I'm curious about the ISO certification process. What was the business driver that initiated that need? So the business driver is we were getting, a, and we still do actually, we get a lot of assessments from our clients. So they want to assess that, 
you know, our security, that our standards and everything is up to par because they're eventually going to be giving us some sort of information. And, and for most companies, the stuff they trade on the legal end is really important. It could be about a merger. It could be about a public offering. Like there's a lot of things that you're keeping very secret, but you need to share them with your attorneys. So we were getting a lot of these and it was really hard to say, well, to what standards should we be shooting for as opposed to, well, this one comes in and they say we should be doing this and this one comes in and now we should be doing that. And instead of learning as we went, we decided, well, let's pick a standard which will hopefully encompass most of what they're asking for so that these go a lot easier when they come in. The real hope was that if we got ISO 27001 certified, maybe we can say, well, we're ISO 27001 certified and the assessment would be over. That really is not how it turned out to be, but it does give us a good baseline because most questions that we get asked can be related back to some sort of ISO control. So we at least know, well, we at least know we do it. We at least can show the policies, the procedures, the evidence, and it makes the assessments go a lot smoother. So, uh, you know, that was a real driver for getting our ISO 27001 certification. We chose that over things like aligning ourselves with NIST or just saying, sure, we do CIS 20 because you, when you actually get a certificate, because there's an actual audit process that you go through for us through the certificate authority. Uh, so you actually get your certificate and you can say, I, it's not just, well, I, I did it myself. You're saying, well, look, there's my piece of paper. And a lot of law firms were, you know, tossing it up and trying to decide which one. A lot of law firms eventually decided, well, if we're going to do anything, it's going to be ISO 27001. A couple of law firms had already gone through the process. So it was a natural next step for us. And it also covers a little better internationally, things like NIST, CIS 20. People are like, eh, that's, you know, but, you know, ISO is an internationally recognized body for a variety of certification so you know you're covering yourself across the globe i'm always shocked about this like as a career software leader <laughs> you know you think about third-party risk management and i'm filling out you know customer forms mm -hmm. and everything and helping with that but then they're inquiring from me to hear that a law firm also is thinking about like i need to have not just my own third-party risk to assess my vendors but i have mm -hmm. to be ready to respond to my clients so i can do business absolutely it's a big part of what a portion of my team does is just answer these constantly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I know the feeling. So, um, you know, it sounds like as you um, started to establish this risk management program, you had to build a model. And we were talking about mm -hmm. that a little bit in a few sessions this week. Maybe you could share a little bit about your maturity model of risk management they built. Sure. So what I was discussing in my session was What's a model for decision-making, risk-based decision-making? There's a lot of maturity models out there for uh, a risk program. And a lot of those get into the granular of, well, what parts of the program do you start? When do you start them? What's the order? And I didn't want to kind of get wrapped up in that because that is so specific to everybody's journey. For us, when we started our journey in risk management, we'd already been doing third-party risk management. So that was like done. But if I was to redo it all from scratch, I probably wouldn't start with that. But I was already there doing it. So it's really hard sometimes with those models. But making you know decisions based on risk you know, when you start your risk program, everybody's starting with essentially the same spot, which is ad hoc, where you just, I'm winging it. Guess what happened yesterday? Oh, I guess I got to figure out what's going to go on. Or, you know, oh, GDPR, it goes into effect tomorrow. Well, I know I've they've been talking about it for a year, but I guess I better put something together because tomorrow is coming. 
I spoke about how you make these decisions on risk and then, you know, it went from, you know, starting ad hoc, you're winging it, then you build your core, which is your policy. So now at least as an organization, you've decided, well, by policy, these are the things we say we do and don't do and want to see happen and not happen and what our tolerance levels are. So at least you now have some, you're not just like saying, well, this came up today, let's all sit down and figure this out. It's more like, well, this came up today. We can at least start with the policies and say, how does the policy drive this decision? From there, it went to a risk model decision-making, which I think is where a lot of people wind up. And it's really a very good place for everybody to be and even stay. If you don't ever get past uh, level three, it's I think it's fine. I think most organizations will be very successful you know, being in that realm. And in, in there, you've basically said, well, here's my risk model, and I'm going to run my risks through this model. That model's then going to give me some sort of output, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, depending on how advanced your model is. And then that is going to help me decide what to do with those risks because I put them through an actual model. And again, I think that's where a lot of people wind up. And like most maturity models that you see out there, if you can get to and stay in level three, you're probably going to be okay. As you start to go into level four of most models, including this models, you really start to have to almost do a risk analysis because it's a risk reward because you're going to start putting in some, a lot more resources to get a lot less out of it. <laughs> you know, when you start going to, to level four, it's now a system, your risks decisions are now based on systems. So in level four, what you're trying to achieve is some integrations where your systems are plugging into your risk model. So now not only do you have your just your risk model that you're running things through, but part of that model is information you're getting from other systems. It could be your vulnerability management system. It could be, you know, your service desk ticketing system. It could be a lot of different things that are now feeding, hopefully automatically in the beginning, crudely manually. And, you know, now that's helping drive your decisions because you're not just saying, well, here's not my model, but here's actually what I see in this world. You know, how bad is... You know, how bad of a risk is business email compromise compared to ransomware? Well, I can run it through my model, which is going to give me results, but those results could change company by company, even month by month, even sometimes day to day. If you start saying, well, here are the service desk tickets that come in and here's what the email telemetry says, right? And, you know, one day it could be ransomware and two months later you could say, nope, it's definitely business email compromise now. So that's how it, you know, it really, it gives you a little bit more real time and personal analysis. And the last one was risk driven decisions where, you know, you have these integrations in place. They're most likely automated at this point. And now the systems are almost telling you, here's where your risk is. You need to go deal with it. As opposed to you saying, well, here's my risk. I'll run it through my model. I add in my metrics to finalize my model. Now it's the systems are plugging in so much information to your GRC your GRC is now able to make some intelligent decisions and they're not completely automated, but now they're saying, today I'm telling you, based off of everything I've seen and your model, I'm telling you today, business email compromise is what you need to worry about the most. Three weeks from now, it could be, hey, it could be that office that you have in Florida with a, the pending hurricane that may or may not be coming. It's telling you now almost what to do. I think I almost referenced, I did not almost, I did reference it in my slides as Skynet from the Terminator movies. I told people, hopefully, you know, you're not dealing with anything nuclear, but you're letting the system almost tell you. Now you're making final decisions because you might still need to decide mitigations and everything else, but there's so much automation going in there. It's almost become alive.
I love that model, the, the yeah. kind of five different stages. If we go back to, I think it was uh, stage three mm -hmm. and just getting the decision-making process right, right in the framework there. Maybe you could share a little bit of uh, tips and tricks because I think like stage four, stage five, super aspirational, mm -hmm. but you get there a ton of value, but many of us are stuck in, you know, three, level yeah. three here. The two parts. So I think to get to level three is first, you got to build your baseline, you build your policy, and then you got to come up with a model. And that model could be different for everybody. And I tell people, look, pick a model that's already out there. You can use this NIST risk model. You can use ISO 27005 as a model. There's so many of them out there. You could use the FAIR model, but I tell people, well, and that's not an easy one to start with. You may want to start with one of the easier ones before you really jump into something as serious and as gorilla-like as the FAIR model. And I, you know, you got to say, okay, well, let me start with this model. Let me see how this model works. You need to run your risks through the model that you see. And then you need to say, well, did I like those results? Are they true? I mean, a lot of times you can look and say, you know, if it comes out and says, well, the threat of an environmental issue is huge and you go, but it's really not You're like, you know, we've never had that incident. So maybe this model's not right, but where did the model go wrong? Um, and then you begin to say, okay, well, what telemetry can I, do I already have, because you don't want to have to create it. You're just starting your model, but what do you already have that you can add in? I mean, most models you start off with, you know, what's the probability of it happening? How does my mitigating controls affect it? Are there any vulnerabilities? And you kind of bring those together and you come up with something, but you know, you can start adding other things. You can say, well, what's the initial threat to this risk? And how does that threat affect me? What's the score of the threat? And then how do I apply that to the actual risk? Um, you know, I know for us, we added in threat, then there was probability because we had probability, vulnerability and mitigations. And then we added in, well, what's the ability to exploit the vulnerability? Because, I mean, you can have vulnerabilities, but if they're not exploitable, we then added in, well, again, what is the threat? How do I base, you know, what threat is actually attacking this and how serious of, do I think that threat is? And sometimes you pull off these generic threat models and we're using one from Europe and one of them is physical attack from animals or something, right? So obviously some of these threats score really, really low. But again, you can even say environmental for us, you know, like for instance, hurricanes based where we have offices, not really worried about them. I'm more worried about earthquakes and wildfires to our organization than I am to say hurricanes where somebody who's based out of Florida or, you know, the Southeast might be more worried about those than they are about earthquakes and wildfires. So, you know, you make those choices and then we even added in what is the cost not from a monetary perspective, but what is the effort to, to actually fix this risk? And it actually scores higher if it's easier, because if you're not taking the candy that's laying out there, then what are you doing? So sometimes you're like, well, it's just writing a policy. All right, that's easy. So it actually makes it a higher risk because the mitigation's easier, where if the mitigation is really hard, it actually makes the risk less. Because again, you might have to just accept it right? You might just have to accept the fact that that's just too hard to fix and every business is in the business of risk. But a lot of people ask me, how do you get out of level three? 
And we are actually in level three. We're kind of like a level three, level four. We're kind of teetering on four. And But people say, well, how do you get out of level three? And I always say, well, this is how I'm going to get out of level three. The first thing I'm going to do is relook at my whole model because my model has to be solid before I try to do integrations. Or if I start plugging in integrations to a bad model and I want to fix it down the line, oh, it's going to be a lot of work. I want to get those integrations right the first time. So I need to see what my model is and how my model changes. So, you know, I always tell people first, you got to just almost do a step back and say, I need to version up my level three. I need to version up my level three needs to be solid. There can be any problems with it because now I'm going to introduce all new data sets. So that's how you get out of there. Uh, that's how you get there. And um, like I said, if you stay there and just make minor tweaks to it and maybe get, you know, do some level four things, but maybe you never really get out of level three, you'll probably be just fine. Yeah. I love this practical advice around starting simple, but then going back and continuous mm -hmm. improvement, continuous improvement, and then in doing a reassessment of your right. program and making small adjustments along the way. I think, you know, you're seeing and we're seeing just the complexity of the data systems that are out there, the pace of change and risks that are out there. It's just becoming more frequent at a higher mm -hmm. pace. And um, uh, but that continuous improvement piece really, I think, is quite helpful, quite helpful advice. Uh, you've been using the LogicGate Risk Cloud uh, for a little bit. Mm -hmm. How has it changed your risk management experience? In my session, I was telling people that GRC in and of itself is not necessarily a tool its process and people and policies. The tools you use enable you to do things better, more efficiently. They are part of the continuous improvement. We were ISO 27001 certified for two, three years on spreadsheets, spreadsheets and Word documents. And, you know, I know a lot of organizations out there, maybe they advance themselves to uh, SharePoint lists and Power BI, right? They didn't, they may or may not have a full-fledged software, but that doesn't mean they don't have a great GRC program. I do think what any GRC tool does for you, including logic gates, is it begins to enable you and make some of these things easier. It begins to take away some of the tasks that you may have been tracking that were very manual and it helps you begin to automate some workflows and enhance that experience for all the people involved. The more you enhance the end user experience in risk, the more likely they will participate in the process. And you just have to have as many people participating and take it seriously. If there's a lot of almost paperwork or bureaucratic or manual barriers, people are less likely to go in and do it. And one of the examples I in the IT world is, is if you have a ticketing system for your IT department as a services system, and you tell people, well, every time somebody calls you, you need to go in and retrospect, enter in that ticket. There's a low likelihood that's going to happen. They're going to help the person who called them. And then they're going to say, oh, I got to do that later. They're never going to get to later. It's eventually going to get thrown away and you miss that data. Now, if there was a way that you can say, well, hey, once you're done, just send an email and you don't have to type anything in or, you know, hey, we're going to set up a service desk. So they call the service desk and they will put in the initial ticket or you tell people will email this email address and then the ticket will come to me and then I'll tell, I'll help you. You see, because now that you've involved the system in there and there's less manual stuff, you see a lot more success. The more success you have, the better data you have. And in anything you do, especially risk, the more data you can bring in, the better decisions you're going to make. Of course, you don't want to 
have too much data where it paralyzes you. So you always have to, because these days you can get a lot of data. <laughs> so you got to find the relevant data, pare it down and then apply it. But yeah, I think all GRC systems, what really makes them great is they just enable you in the process. And anything you can do to make any process smoother is going to be successful for you because there's always going to be things you cannot automate or workflows you cannot put in an electronic system, things you just have to do still in a Word document or whatever it is, those are never going to go away. But I think what a lot of people are experiencing right now is you just can't hire enough people. It's either too costly or they're just not there. You can't find them. So you have to begin to use systems to make up for that gap. I love getting that process embedded in somebody's daily workflow. Mm -hmm. Like if you can get it close to their job, they're not thinking about how I move out of my service desk job mm -hmm. and do something for the risk team and so forth and embedding that workflow yes. and the data in their daily work. It's the way to go. That's the point of even those level four to level five is to begin to integrate that so that if somebody's doing something in the service desk system, when they're complete, if it's relevant, it sends it over to your GRC, which then accepts it and hopefully kicks off whatever it is. And then your governance people can take it from there. You're not asking that person to go and do use another system and do yet another task in their day. Um, unfortunately, like I was saying, getting to those points in the level four and the level five area, sometimes you got to ask, you know, it's a lot of resources to move the needle just a little bit. You know, in the beginning when you're like, well, I just got to write some policies, you can move the needle a huge amount with very little effort and very little resources. I mean, you need Word or Google Docs and a human being. Maybe you have to socialize in and get it approved by other human beings. But in the end, at, you know, four and five, you're talking about, okay, well, how does this API work? And how does that API work? And what kind of development resources do I need? And what's that going to cost? And how long is it going to take them to figure out these two APIs to even talk to each other? And hopefully in the end, it does what I want it to do. You could be looking at six, seven months and tens of thousands of dollars to say, I pulled in one metric. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> it's so true. It's a great tip um, for like, maybe my next question is like, as you think out there, like you're working through moving uh, up through three and four in the mm -hmm. model and more automation and data integration. But when you think about things that are out there on your roadmap, everyone has a roadmap, right? right? From a vision standpoint, what do you got your eye on over the next year or two, right. whether it's a, a technology or a methodology or anything like that? Well, I, I do like to dream big, I may not always execute big, but I like to dream big. So yeah, I dream of level five. I want to get there. I want there to be, you know, more automation in the process. I want this, you know, I've told all my team, it, I feel like we have a lot of great systems, but we're like at the high school dance, right? And nobody's dancing with each other, right? Everybody's standing in a corner. Every system is in its own little corner. I said, what I want is I want to dance. I want the systems to dance together. I want them to be relational. You know, I don't want them to be so disparate. I want them to feed each other information. And even at times, depending on what thresholds we may uh, set, take action. I mean, it's possible. Again, you know, I joke about the whole Skynet thing or, you know, maybe it's iRobot or whatever your favorite <laughs> scary AI movie is. But to me, that's where there's, again, there's just not enough time to do everything. So if you can build your models and build your processes and then make those, program those in and program the systems to talk to each other, my goal would be to walk in in the morning, open up my GRC and it say, 
here's the risks you need to be concerned about right here, right now. Here's what yesterday's were. Maybe they're even the same, but here's what's going to be a problem today. And heck, if it could even tell me, here's what's coming up in the future. So you can start dealing with it. And you're not dealing with stuff that's not a problem because you can only deal with so much because you might even say, well, great, I might have a whole bunch of risks I really need to deal with. But I know that, you know, as an organization, we really only deal with three things at a time. Only show me the top three risks. Just don't even bother my mind with, you know, four through 10 at this point. Take it in digestible pieces. And as I knock one off, it'll bump one up. There'll always be a top three, but just taking little bites at a time. So that's where I want to get my team to is I want to get them to the point where the process is solid so that we can begin to actually make these systems work together. Yeah, yeah. I think that'll do great. I always have this, um, you know, one thing at a time and all that. It's the first recommendation engine, yeah. the first decision, and you yes. make those incremental steps. Well, thanks for uh, spending some time with me this week. It has uh, absolutely been great. Any big plans, anything you're excited about on the personal front? Yeah, in about a week and a half, I'm going to uh, Hawaii for the week. So celebrate my 25th wedding anniversary, which was actually supposed to be celebrated two years ago. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, COVID came along and Hawaii shut down and then Hawaii wasn't completely open up last year. So this is it. Third time's a charm. So we'll do 25, 26, 27 all in one trip. <laughs> so no, really excited about that. And um, I'm sure it's going to be a great time. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. That's Thank a you. huge milestone. It's been great hanging out with you this week. Safe travels. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To learn more about how Risk Cloud can help mature your organization's risk model, visit logicgate.com today.